Well, we did. We're starting chapter 17. Okay. So without any introductions, even though there may be one or two people here who weren't here when we did chapter 16, but I decided that we're not doing introductions, you'll see why. And with the above in mind, one can understand the scriptural text, for this thing is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart, so you can fulfill it. What needs to be explained about what I just read? What is near to you? How does that make it near to you? Does not sound near. What is in mind from above? Yes, what is the the thing above that we have to have in mind? And how does that, and what about the verse needs to be explained? And then how does it explain the verse? There are three things that this paragraph, it's not even a paragraph, it's a sentence, uh, require for us to understand it. One, what is the above that we're supposed to have in mind? Two, what about this verse needs to be explained? And three, how does the above explain it? So we should know what we learned previously, yes? So now I'm going to recap what we learned (laughs) in chapter 16. See, I planned that out. (laughs) Okay. What did we learn in chapter 16? We learned a lot of stuff, yeah? So if I were to ask you, can you boil it down to like one or two basic core ideas? What did we learn in chapter 16? Contemplating the greatness of Hashem. That, 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 I would say that that's something in there, but that's like, the, chapter 16 is, there is this thing called contemplating greatness of Hashem, like that's it, that's all we learned about. I mean, it's, I feel like it's one of the big ideas. It is a, I would say it's not a big idea, and I would say it is part of a big idea. Okay, some people through contemplating greatness of Hashem can come to an actual motion, some can't, and then Hashem can help you bring your messes up to the same place. That's it. Some people do come to genuine emotions when it, genuine felt emotions when it comes from contemplating Hashem, and some people don't, but they still produce a kind of personal attachment, and that is good enough, because whatever is lacking, Hashem will fill in the gaps, right? So what have we learned? What is really expected of us is not to produce a love or fear of Hashem, which is a tangible, visceral, emotional experience. It's enough that we produce something which has that is that personal attachment and conviction and investment, right? That's sufficient. And it, and it could be that that's all we can achieve through contemplating Hashem's greatness. Right? Now, did we learn a lot of details about like what it means to contemplate, what is even emotion, different levels of emotions, right? How emotions elevate that, right? We learned a lot of stuff around that, but that's kind of the core idea, right? The core idea was A, we have to use our mind to govern the heart. And B, governing the heart doesn't necessarily mean producing full-fledged emotions. It means producing that level of, of what he called tavunas the, the, the inner recesses and understanding of one's mind and heart. That that provides that sense of attachment, conviction, connection, which infuses a sense of drive to the mitzvahs and then Hashem will connect that and elevate the mitzvahs, blah, blah, blah. Good? Okay. So... We accomplished the first thing, right? We know what the thing is above, right? That contemplation doesn't have to produce transformative emotional experience. It just has to be able to produce that level of attachment, that level of conviction, that level of connection. 
How does that help us understand this verse? So we need to understand, well, what is difficult in this verse? Okay, so the Alkrib is actually going to do that second part for us. He's going to tell us what's difficult in the verse so we can keep reading, strangely enough. At first glance, in your heart, I'm skipping the brackets because the brackets are, are not really, seems to be contrary to our experience. Yet the Torah is eternal. We'll come back to that bracketed section. For it is not a very near thing to change one's heart from mundane desires to a sincere love of God. Indeed, it is stated in the Gemara, if fear of heaven is, a, if, is fear of heaven a small thing, and how much more so love? Okay, so what is the problematic part of this verse? What about this verse needs explanation? It is very near in your mouth and in your heart to do it. How do you feel? Why do you feel it? Okay, well, the heart, right? The, the heart, and what about the heart? The fact that it claims that it is near to you in your heart, okay? How does the Alter Rebbe understand this idea of near? Close, near, what does he mean by that? Or what does he think God means by that? Because it's a verse, you know. Okay, we're back to the thinking part. You have to do some thinking. In your ability. What? In your ability. In your ability. That's all you It's in your ability, okay? And what does he think, therefore, is not in your ability? That you're incapable. What? So what is that? He, he, he says... He says one's heart mundane desires sincere love. Okay. So let's stop and think about that for a second. What, it, what does that mean to change my heart from... Mundane desires to sincere love of God. Let's for, and then let's ask ourselves: Do we agree with the Alter Rebbe? Do we agree that it's in, in our experience it is not within our cap, cap, capacity to do that? Yes. But what does it mean to change your heart from mundane desires to sincere love of God? What would that look like? Not how would you do it. What does it look like you want to do before? Something? What does it look like afterwards? You want something. You want to eat something, so you go, you have a desire to eat something, you have to go, so just do that, versus turning that into something that God wants. Maybe? If I were your student, would I understand what you meant? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Our sages say you learn most from your students. But anyway, like, like, there's a change, right? Like, I'm gonna, here's a change, right? And I'm doing, this is intentionally going to be a little bit um, not said nicely, just to drive the point home, okay? There's someone who's really, really disgustingly overweight, and there's someone who looks like a supermodel. Can, you, can a person change from being the first type of person to the second type of person? Is that possible? Yeah. Okay. But that's a bit, that, like, I don't need to now describe it. We can describe that, that, the, the before versus the after and how different that is, right? Okay? Appearance-wise, bodily function-wise, blah, 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 blah. And then we can ask ourselves, well, what do you need to do to go from point A to point B, right? And is that something a person is capable of doing? And, okay, good. Now let's move a step to something a little more refined. Let's take a person. Let's take a person who 
um, is irresponsible. They commit to things that don't follow through. They don't consider the consequences of their actions, right? And obviously their life is a total mess, yes? And then you have a person who is a responsible person. If they say something, they will do it. They really consider the consequences of their actions, right? They acknowledge the importance of having good information and therefore they consult people who know more than them when they realize that they are not um, an expert or, not, or knowledgeable about something, right? Those are two very different types of people, right? Is it someone who's the first type of person? Could they become the second type of person? Yeah. Yes. Okay. That's a, that's a claim, right? That was it. That's a claim you're making, right? Someone could say, I don't think they can. I think that I think that responsibility and not responsibility is something so ingrained either based on how you, your genetics work or based on early childhood experience that once you hit adulthood, like there's nothing you can change. Right? Those, those are competing claims, right? I'm presenting it's possible, I'm it's not possible. If you claim it's possible, then the question is, what do you need to do to go there, right? Those. But before we get to how you do it, right, and the claim that it's possible or not possible, we know what is that change? So he's saying there's a change of a person who has mundane desires and there's a person who has sincere love of God. So I want you to describe what does it look like a person who has mundane desires and what does it look like a person who has a sincere love of God and let's try and then think, does the claim that that is something that is, and you guys have said that near means capable, does that sound like something that you feel is capable? Because the author Deb is claiming that if you look at your experience, it should seem like that feels like something that you are. It's not near, so I mean, not near means not capable. I don't know. We'll figure out if capable is really the right way of thinking about it. But before we do that, what does it look like a person who has mundane desires? And what does it look like a person who has sincere love of God? Let's start with this. Are we, should we look at the person's behavior? And if so, why? And if not, why? Let's start with that. I'm describing these two different people. Is there, looking at their behavior the right way they're trying to get at the difference? No. Why not? Because you could feel, you could do things that look like you have a sincere love of Hashem, but really you just have them being Right. In other words, there is, human beings have this amazing ability to control their behavior based on things other than what they are feeling right now, right? What they desire, what they want, right? Like people that you know, work in a job that they despise, but they know that they need to get a paycheck to pay their bills, right? So the fact that someone complies with the Torah does not necessarily mean anything. Now, conversely, I would say that if you have a sincere love of God, you're probably not sinning, right? That would, that would make a certain kind of sense? Yeah, probably. Okay. So we could say that behavior is only going to work one way. I can tell someone who doesn't have a sincere love of God. Right? But I can't really tell the opposite. I can't really tell that you do have a So now, let's, so when we're talking about the differences, we need to talk about something that's a more subjective experience rather than behavior that can be observed from the outside, Right? So what is the inner life of a person who has mundane desires? What does that feel like? What does that look like? Versus what is the inner life of a person who has sincere love of God look like? Self-serving. Self-serving. What do you mean by that? Like they're only interested in what they want, what they need, what they think is important. So the minute that like I have a happy, healthy marriage, I'm already out of the category of mundane desires because you can't have a happy, healthy marriage if that's your attitude. I'm just, you should know that. Like, your person's like... Depends on your intentions are. 
We're in physical darkness, but we are, but we are in, in spiritual light. I think it's the street because the fuses are all up. Um, okay. Tanya continues. <laughs> all right. No, that's no, like, like, I mean, this is something I heard from, from, from another rabbi, but I think it, it, it's, a, it's a good way of putting, which I think is a very simple idea. If you make your life all about you and what's in it for you, you have no common ground with other people. You know why? There's not another human being on earth that has that point of view. So if you're going to engage in any kind of like mutualness, whether it be a marriage or a friendship or anything like that, you have to have a kind of a, a sense of life that's not merely just like, I am the number one priority above all everything else and everything else is a means to my self-gratification. Um, so like... I would agree with you that someone who has that kind of self-absorbed kind of a mindset is somebody who's definitely not have sincere love of God, but I wouldn't say the opposite, that that means that, you know, he's in this dichotomy, it's not like, oh, so like once you free yourself of that, now you have sincere love of God. No, I think you could free yourself of that. I think most adults actually, for the most part, do free themselves of that more or less of a degree, you know, if they have like normal, healthy relationships with other people. So, what does the inner life of someone with mundane desires look like in the persistence your love of God? One second. I want to not use religious words. I want like words that can describe for us what it is like to be such a person, that inner experience. Um, um, like interworldly things or struggles and sees other things before. Just got along. So someone with sincere love of God wouldn't go to a museum of their own volition. Yeah. Okay. The Rebbe Shab went to the museum. Of his own volition. Of his own volition. <laughs> to look at the art. Okay, so now we have to get a little more sophisticated. I just want to point that out, right? right? This is, the problem is, is that I want to move us away from simply, there's a way in which um, we can think in terms of, we're still thinking behaviorally. We're still thinking of what kind of things you want to do behaviorally. We're not, you want to say something. Um, maybe like the person with the mundane desires sees everything as like mundane, everything as like, it's just like happening. But then the person with the sincere love of God sees everything in like, oh, God's doing this, God's doing that. And sees God in everything. Okay, now we're, we're, we're I, I think we're making a lot of progress with that. I, 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 I think that the, that that's needs to be refined a bit. I mean, we, we definitely put God versus not God into the equation, which is good. Um, but we, we haven't really gotten at this issue of desire and love necessarily. But, you, but you're good. You, you've, you're kind of, there's mundane versus God, right? So let's flesh that out before we get to the love, Okay. I had a friend way back when life was still good. No, okay. <laughs> um, I had a friend many years ago. We've since we've not been in touch. Um, and um, his, he was trying to explain to me what it means to be someone who's like really a business person. Like really like that's who they are. So he's, his uncle is very wealthy. Um, donates a lot of money and he's in Chabad or whatever. And 
his uncle, he said, one time went on a cruise, a kosher cruise. I am not saying that going on a kosher cruise is a good thing. I am not saying that the kosher cruises are fine. I'm not saying that this kosher cruise is even kosher. I don't know. I have a lot of interesting questions how you do a kosher cruise, but there are such things as kosher cruises, and he went on one. Okay. So with his wife, there, this is probably, I mean, now he's much older, but this was probably when he was in his like 60s, 70s, whatever, his life. And so he asked his uncle after the cruises, how was your vacation? He says, I didn't have a vacation. Your aunt had a vacation. So, so what would you do? He says, I think I should buy a cruise ship. Meaning he went on a cruise and the only thing you could think about is this a good investment. He sees everything in life in terms of is an investment, right? Everything gets a label. It's an investment that's worth investing in or it's an investment that's not worth investing in or it just doesn't register. Right? There's a kind of like anchor point in his experience. Right? What is the anchor point in the person who has sincere love of God in their experience? God. So they experience everything in terms of where's the God in it? So some things are intimate connection with God. Some things are devoid of God, whatever. But like that's, right. now, here's the question. What about the rest of us? How do we experience? How do we experience life? Kind of just as like life. Like it's just yeah, there's happen. just stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, mund- the mundane of life, right? Like, this is nice, this is pretty, this is, this is... Fuses have done to me trouble. Did the lights go back on? Nope. No. Only, only the spiritual ones. <laughs> um, you know, like, I have a lot of areas in my life. So, like, I'm remodeling my house. Wow. Ooh, vayhi ur. <laughs> By the way... Can you see the out better? Is that it's easier to see? Yeah, it's on. Okay. So the fuses upstairs fell, and then the fuse fell. Oh. So if it happens again, go upstairs, there's two big three fuses. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Do you feel like it's you have a better sense of yourself and your surroundings when the light is on? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just remember that godliness is compared to light. And if you don't have a sense of godliness, you might not realize it, you might get used to it, but you're actually walking around in the dark. Mm-hmm. And therefore you see everything in terms of their mundane qualities. So I am, and just talk about myself, because why not, right? Use someone as an example, and I've picked on you guys enough for the, you know, at least for a while. I don't know if this is gonna last, but we'll use myself. <laughs> um, so I'm remodeling my house. Your wife told us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a whole endeavor. I don't know. I don't know what she said. Whatever she said that puts her in a good light is all true. Um, we love her. What, so, yeah. Yeah. I also love her. <laughs> so I also have seven children. Um, one is a teenager. One is on the transition to becoming a teenager. One just had an upshernish. One just had an upshernish. That we were not a part of. But it happened at the yeshiva. Yes. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different things. I teach the women's program. I teach the men's program. I teach online. Um, I have friends. I have a lot of areas of my life. And you know what's very interesting I've noticed about my life is that 
a lot of different things become the anchor point. Like, so like there's points at time where like the building is like, that's the anchor point. I don't have time for my kids. I don't have time for a teacher. Like everything is, is it, my headspace, everything in terms of like, what's going on with the building? What do we need to do? What do we not need to do? What's the problem, right? And everything else just kind of gets muted, right? Or like with my kid or with my relationship with my wife or with my own private learning or with, so like for instance, when I was walking here, um, I was involved in something that's nothing to do with this class. Like my own personal interest. And I was listening to a shir on a topic that I find personally interesting. Nothing to do with here. And that's like a mental shift somewhere else. Why? Because everything kind of has, it's just kind of the quality of what it is, the way you relate to it, the way it speaks to you, and that's that. And so we live in a very fragmented world, right? Does that make sense? And we, we'd like to try and create cohesiveness between those things. Someone whose anchor point is God, do they have that problem? That doesn't mean they experience everything the same, but they're experiencing everything in terms of the same root point. So that's already a big difference, right? Okay, now let's talk about love and desire. And I want to treat love and desire for right now as synonyms, okay? I, I, I will differentiate them later, but right now I want to talk about them as synonyms. In what sense are love and desire the synonyms? In, in, um, in Hebrew, he called, it's the word is taiva for desire and ahava for love. But even the Hebrew uses two different words. Why should I treat them as synonyms? What is it like to desire something? You never had desires? You have had desires, yes? So what is it like to desire something? You want it. Wanting is such an interesting word. There's a song, We Want Mashiach Now. You've heard this song? So the Rebbe, and I don't remember when, when the Rebbe said it, but to my recollection, the Rebbe once explained why the song is sung in English. How do you say want in Hebrew? So the issue is that the word rotzeh doesn't have the exact same meaning as the word want. Although we can use them as translations and it's fine. Like, you know, it's going to misunderstand you. But the English word want actually does not mean desire originally. You know what it really started off meaning? No. No? Me? Lack. Like, if you say someone has been found wanting, what does that mean? They are lacking. When you, when you feel like you are lacking something, you have a desire to... To fill that lack, right? So the notion of want is how a lack creates this desire for it to be fulfilled. Whether that lack is real or genuine or not is a side point, yeah? So the Rebbe pointed out that we saying, it's not just that we, we, we have a lacking of Mashiach, we feel that the absence of Mashiach in our life is a problem and therefore we desire Mashiach. Um, that's, whereas if you say that in Hebrew, the word rotzeh, um, comes from, it's a derivative of the same root for the word rat to mean run, which is the idea of pursuit. So again, they both mean want, they both mean desire, but they, they're coming at it from different angles. Rates is coming from the idea of pursuing something, whereas wanting is coming from the idea of lacking something. It's interesting, the origin of words, right? Okay. Um, so, 
if you want something you feel lacking, then you want that lacking fulfilled, right? You're trying to fulfill that. When you love someone or something, that's also very similar, right? When they're absent, you feel lack and you desire to, to have their, that closeness with them, right? So there's the, that notion of, of fulfilling that, that emptiness is very similar in love and desire, so much so that we often might use them interchangeably, such as I love pizza, right? Right. What? <laughs> What's wrong with that example? <laughs> okay. We got pizza bomba in it. Pizza with what? Pizza bomba. Store. But store. store in the shook. As I've tried to convey to my children, not everything that is labeled as pizza meets the criteria of pizza. <laughs> okay. Um, so here's the thing. When you go around navigating the world, and there's all sorts of stuff, um, it, a lot, most of our experience basically can boil down to this is the stuff that I feel like I'm lacking and would like to have as part of my life. And this is the stuff that is creating obstacles to that, that I like therefore to get rid of my li- for my life. And then everything else we're almost oblivious to. Yeah. For instance, you know there's a major snowstorm that occurred recently in the United States. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Do you know that there was like thousands of flights canceled over the holiday weekend? Yeah. No. <laughs> but here's the thing. I want to point out. Some of, some of us knew about this. Some of us did not know about this, right? Those of us who knew about this, and those who did not know about this, more or less had the same relationship with it, which is, for instance, now that you know about it, has your life changed in any meaningful way? No. Not really. On the other hand, let's imagine you were trying to take a flight. Even if your flight wasn't canceled, the mere fact that there's a storm and flights are getting canceled all of a sudden. Oh no. Right, oh no, that's a huge significance, right? So the way you experience all the things is in terms of do I want this as part of my life or is this getting in the way of the stuff I want as part of my life, right? And the stuff that doesn't fit into either category almost becomes so small that it barely registers. Yeah? Now, then there's people who, they love God, sincerely. What does it mean they would love God sincerely? How does everything register to them? Equally? No. How much does this thing feel the need for love for God? Thing. I have a sincere love of God. (laughs) Thing. (laughs) That's creature. Sincere, appropriate person, the sincere love of God. How do they experience the world? Everything is anchored in terms of God. Okay. In terms of what's important, Asha. Nah. It's the same thing with the flight. It's the same thing with the flight. It's just in terms of the availability of God. Where God is more available, it's like, yes. Where things are, where God is not available, it's like, Ugh. And that's it. That's how they experience everything. It's not so complicated. Where is God not available? Mm, that requires wisdom. For instance, somebody might be able to discover God in going to the museum. So they go to the museum to get a new, new, get a new lens on God. 
But somebody might not have any sense of how to find God in a museum. And then that person, even though they're sincere in love of God, would think that going to a museum is just this completely, like, it's degenerate thing. Like, they just find it repulsive. Like, why would you waste your time in that nothingness? Both people have a sincere love of God. One just has a sense that God can be found there, the other one doesn't. Yeah? Is that a matter of opinion or where God is like it's a matter. It's a matter of a combination of your soul, your previous experiences, and your effort. And it's a function of where God can be present. There are certain places where, objectively speaking, God cannot be found. Sin. Who? What? Who? Sin. Oh. Um, I said sin. What? <laughs> sin. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and him, because he's a pretty nasty guy. No, sin. Um, sin. God cannot be found in sin, objectively. Everything else is a matter of like, do you have the sensitivity, the, the whatever. Yeah. Okay, so if you're sincerely in love with God, um, your inner life is gonna look very, very, very different, right? When you get up in the morning, what is the thing that is going to make you look forward to the day? Moda'ani. I get to Mo, no, that's right. Moda'ani will make you look forward to the day because you, because you sense that when you say Moda'ani, you've achieved a kind of closeness with God. And so you look forward to Moda'ani. What else do you look forward to in the day? Okay. And now, but the thing is like, that becomes like a very generic term, right? Okay. What, um, what would make you frustrated? If any obstacles that gets in the way of attaining the connection with the Right. So there were two brothers named the Rebbe of Melech of Lezhensk. That's how he's called, the Rebbe of Melech. I don't know why, but that's how he's called. And his brother, Zusha of Anapoli. And as is traditional for rabbis in Eastern Europe, they were in prison. <laughs> Why were they in prison? No. No. Generally, rabbis didn't go to prison in Eastern Europe for teaching Torah. That's only the communist era. Uh, they, they were in prison for collecting money for redeeming Jews who had been, um, needed money to bribe, to bribe or pay off debts. And when you go around collecting money, you run afoul of being considered a spy or a smuggler or just, anyway, it's a good excuse to like accuse the person of subverting the government and so they got thrown in jail. And because jails are such civilized places, for a toilet there was a bucket. And um, the Rebbe Melech started to cry because it was the time to daven and they couldn't daven because you cannot daven in the presence of foul material like that. What? Yeah. <laughs> It's an important halacha to know, especially when you have little children with diapers, by the way. Yeah. Or if it's in your house. We have a sewage issue. I have a sewage issue once in our house. There are cockroaches involved. Story for another time. We don't have that. So, his brother says, why are you crying? He says, because we can't daven. So it's time to daven, and we can't daven. So we're disconnected. And his brother, Zusha, says, but isn't the halacha that you can't daven when there's filth? 
So by not davening, are we not fulfilling his will? So are we not connected to him and are not davening? And, and, uh, and Rebbe Melech was so struck by that idea, it brought him such joy that he got up to dance and his brother danced and they started dancing with such joy and excitement that they were connected to God by not davening that the, the, all the other people started dancing because, you know, nothing better to do. And the jailer comes like, what's all this hollabaloo? And everyone points to the two Jews. The two Jews point to the bucket. He says, ah, you're happy you have a bucket? Well, I'll take that bucket out. It was happy you are that now. And he takes the bucket and they could go daven. Oh. Um, so, you know, the... the, the the sincere love of God comes on many levels, right? Those were not, one person had a more narrow sense of, of where God can be found, right? So you could have a sincere love of God that's less mature, more mature, more nuanced, less nuanced, more sophisticated. You could even get to a sincere love of God where you have perfect equanimity, where you are, nothing ever bothers you. Why? Everything is just another way to be close to God. And therefore, everything is good, by definition. And nothing can ever bother you. Now, that, we're not talking about necessarily getting to that level. We're just getting that, that in general, you're, right, you, could, you could not get to that. You get to the level that you can feel very frustrated because you're being deprived of ways of connecting to God and you can't find ways to connect to God. But still, your inner life is what? It's anchored around God and God as the, as the positive that's what gives positive value to things, right? So where I find Hashem is positive, where Hashem seems absent is negative, and that colors my entire experience of life. That's a person who sincerely loves Hashem. The rest of us, what do we have? We have, to work mundane, desires. We have mundane desires. Now, I'm going to ask you very simply, can you imagine turning yourself from someone who feels good when their home renovations work out smoothly and gets frustrated when they get um, frustrated. Um, another word that changed its meaning. Um, someone who feels satisfaction knowing that they're doing something that is socially valued um, and someone who feels empty when they have no social role. Can you imagine turning yourself from that kind of person? And then plus the basic things like, you know, you know, feels better when there's pleasant atmosphere and good food and feels kind of miserable when you're like in a cold, dark place, right? Can you imagine changing from that kind of a person to a kind of person who the thing that brings you joy and sadness is the availability of closeness to Hashem. That is the anchor point of your experience. Does that seem like a transition you can, you know, accomplish in the next five minutes, five years? Five decades? Okay, so now I'm going to ask you, how are you about doing that? Because adding more time, is very important, adding more time without an explanation of how you're, that time comes that is called fan, is fantasy. Because if you put something far enough away, you can fantasize about being the case, but that's not what we're talking about, right? This happens all the time. People are like, like, you know, at some future point, I will go from being the, you know, having the problems I have to not having the problems. You ask, okay, well, fine. How much time is it going to take? Why is it going to take my time? I don't know. Well, then then there's no difference between five decades and tomorrow. So how would you go about doing that? I don't know. So you don't really see how the, that, that change can happen. I have chapter 16 in mind. But chapter 16 in mind does not help you with that. Does chapter 16 change any of that? 
By focusing on one area of your life. Such as? Your home renovations. Okay, and then what am I supposed to do? Try to change your attitude towards it. Such as? Like when things go wrong, look at it, look at it as not as the actual things that are going on, but Hashem's like... Hashem playing an active role in it. Okay, and that will do what? Let's, I'm going to do, I, I did that. I did, what? You'll get less frustrated. Because I will get less frustrated because it's from Hashem. Why will it being from Hashem make me less frustrated? Because you have this trust in God which is also a different part of it that you, like, it's part of the work. Okay. You trust that what God is giving is good. Okay. So, what you have said is that instead of being frustrated that the home renovations aren't going as I want, I should not be frustrated because someone who cares about me is running the home renovations and they know what they're doing, and therefore there's no reason for me to be frustrated. And that someone happens to be God, but okay, yes? Does that put me at the point where, where God is the anchor point in my experience? No, but then once you work on that and meditate on that, you'll get more than you're So then tell me the next step. I want you to tell me the next step. Like, uh, I agree with you. Like, I trust me. I've been doing that. Like that, that. I agree with you. That is a very good thing to do. It doesn't turn me into a person. It turns me into a person that's tremendous gratitude for Hashem. It feels a great dependency on Hashem. That Hashem becomes a major character in my life. That doesn't mean that that the Hashem is the anchor point, right? Because I can be perfectly honest, right? My mood is a lot more correlated with how the building project is going than whether or not I get to Dava Mincha. Okay, so like, and that's not making a huge change. In fact. One can always do the opposite. Like when I feel the real need for Hashem's help, all of a sudden Mincha becomes more important. When things are working out well, Mincha seems less important. So it's almost like Hashem is, is playing a very, very, he gets, you know, he, gets, he gets the Oscar for best supporting actor in my life story. Um, but he's still not the anchor point. You see what I'm saying? That's what I'm asking you. How do you do that? That seems so obvious. Like they, 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 does that seem like something you can do? How do you do it? By meditating on it. And then what's supposed to happen? I meditate on what? But what's you have this actual meditation, not just a meditation that what you like. Okay, so I do the meditation, the greatness of Hashem, and then what happens? Like, how does that change work? It's just the way you see things are different. Okay. It's like you have a new pair of glasses. That's right. I would have to accomplish a total reframing of my entire experience of reality through some kind of contemplative meditative practice. Yeah. One can even argue that I'm actually verging into the realm of kind of like a spiritual enlightenment occurring rather than just like integrating things I know. Now, I'm not asking if it's fun. I'm, I'm asking, it does that. Now, the Alterbus says that this does not seem to be close. What does he mean this doesn't seem to be close? That it's not attainable to everyone? Doesn't really seem so attainable. Like, I think, first of all, it's a lot of work. And I think, if we're be honest, even if you did all that work for five decades, success is not guaranteed. Right? It's the kind of thing that, like, it seems like there's other factors that need to play a role in that. In other words, what, 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 this medi- meditating and, and reflecting all these things may be a necessary thing to do to achieve that, but it's certainly not sufficient. You can easily con- conceive of someone spending their whole life doing that and not really making substantive progress in this. That after six, seven decades, it still bothers them 
when somebody doesn't treat them with the proper respect they think they deserve. They still feel more comfortable knowing they have money in the bank than being broke because their sense of the anchor point is their material well-being. And like, that's not a criticism as a bad person, right? It doesn't make them the, the scum of the universe, but to say that that, that, that you know, sincere love of Hashem is what's the, that's, the, that's their inner life. So it really does seem like it's kind of beyond us. Certainly beyond us in the sense that we can, we can do something to ensure success in that. And especially if we were to change the meaning of close to not just capable, but capable in a very reasonable sense, within a reasonable time frame, right? Like try and finish it by like tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year. Then it really seems very like... So I think we should agree with the altar, but yeah, it really is beyond our experience. It doesn't seem like... So the Torah is wrong. It is not close in our heart in order. Just not... Is it okay to say the Torah was wrong? Why not? <clears throat> Why not? Because the Torah came before the world. There's a bracketed section, the bold brackets, because those are the Alter Rebbe's actual words. There's, there's a, the, the non-bold brackets for the printers. What does he say in the bold brackets? The Torah is eternal. What does it mean that the Torah is eternal? And why is that relevant here? Did you know that it is forbidden to do laundry on Fridays? Yes. Halacha prohibits doing laundry on Friday. Unless. Unless what? Oh, that's because laundry takes a long time. And if you allow people to do laundry on Fridays, they won't have time to prepare for Shabbos. What? What if you put it on a quick setting? It's just the minutes. Wait, wait, wait. I guess. It turns out that that statement that laundry is prohibited is not eternally relevant, is it? Does it apply to everybody at all times? It doesn't. So now, if you, if you, if you, now you say yes. You know how you do that. You make, you make a, you make a little refinement. You say it's like this. There is an implicit condition in the statement, which is that in a society where laundry is done by hand, it is prohibited to do laundry on Fridays. And voila, we kept the statement being eternal while also keeping it irrelevant. Unless laundry takes very fast for you. No, not for you. The for you doesn't work, no, actually. No, no, for we don't, your society. For your society, your society right? There wasn't but here's the thing. Here's the history of it, right? This enactment was put in place, let's say, around two and a half thousand years ago with Ezra. Ezra banned doing laundry on Fridays. When Ezra banned doing laundry on Fridays, who was Ezra? Ezra thanks Ezra. Yes. You should thank Ezra for. You should thank Ezra for everything. Hashem was like, Moshe is so great. We need like to do that again. And then he sent Ezra. Um, 
So Ezra Band doing Ezra Band doing laundry on on Fridays. When Ezra Band doing laundry on Fridays, did Ezra say unless you have washing machines? No, he did not. He absolutely did not. There was no washing machines. He just banned doing laundry on Fridays, right? What happened? Chimes changed. Chimes changed, as the question is, is that law still in effect? So we say the law is still in effect, but we need to rent, but we also made the law irrelevant, right? By, by understanding that there is an implicit condition in the law, which is that it only applies when there's a societal level problem of laundry taking all day. See how that works? Okay. So, there's something being eternal in a very technical sense. Something can be eternal, and the way to preserve its eternality is to add so many implied qualifications and stipulations (coughs) that it's rendered irrelevant so that it doesn't create any problems about it continuing to be in effect. You want other examples of such things we do in the Torah? Okay. So, um, you want a controversial example or like a benign example? Controversial. What? Controversial. What? Both. Okay. So, uh, 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 another kind of uh, just banal example is that um, the sages made a rule, okay, that... Actually, that's a little complicated to explain. Let me use a, let me use a more simple one. There is a mitzvah in the Torah. There's a, there's a mitzvah in the Torah that you are um, supposed to, that regulates the ownership of slavery. There's all sorts of mitzvahs in the Torah that regulate the ownership of slavery. Now, you could imagine that would create a lot of problems if Orthodox Jews start trying to like follow the slavery regulations, right? But do we want to say that the Torah is like wrong? The Torah is no longer in effect? How do you solve this problem? So we, we, in this case, what we do is say, well, there is a general principle of monetary law that the law of the land is the law. And so if the law of the land does not allow for the ownership of other human beings, the Torah law would have to say that you can't own another human being because Torah law respects the law of the land and therefore all the laws of slavery and ownership all become rendered, like, irrelevant. Unless the law of the land... Ah, right. It does create the possibility if you move to a place that still the secular authorities allow slavery, they would come back, right? So you see, I like you kind of like... Okay? And I'll do something that's much more controversial. That, 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 that's kind of banal, like nobody really is interested in, in slavery. Okay, here's the thing. Um, according to Torah law, according to Torah law, who owns the property in a marriage? The husband or the wife or both? The husband. The husband. Now that had kind of serious ramifications, right? What is the actual basic halakhic practice in this regard? So the actual halakhic practice in this regard is that we imply so many different implicit agreements and conditions about how marital property is used that in practice, 
you, it's very hard to find any base that will simply say, well, the marital property belongs to the husband and the wife is only titled to the suit, right? Now, exactly the legal mechanisms for doing that is, goes beyond the scope of it, but that's in practice. So, and what that does is that the law is technically the law, but is that like a relevant part of like a divorce proceeding? Not entirely, not really so much. Why? Because you can... So there's ways you can keep something eternal. This is my point. There's ways you can keep something eternal by taking the teeth out of it. Right? You add implicit, in other words, implicit conditions. There's other factors. And so while technically we don't just get rid of it and say it was wrong, in all practical purposes, it like, it's good for like academic study and it doesn't actually play a role. Does that make sense? Okay. So the Torah says that it is close in your heart, it's close to you in your heart to turn yourself, life, from having mundane desires to sincere love of God, right? Now, obviously, we don't think God is wrong, right? So um, how could we, like, keep that being technically correct without it contradicting our experience? If you have a certain type of neshama. Oh, you say you have a certain type of neshama. Well, that's hard because it's addressed to the people as a whole, so that's not going to fit in context. But that was a good guess. That's going to come back later on, by the way, that idea. Not everything in Torah is addressed to everybody, literally, but okay. What else? What other things could we do to keep the verse being technically correct without it contradicting our experience? Jews are very good at this. We're very creative. So it keeps us around. Who is Moshe talking to? The B'nai Yisrael. Who are these B'nai Yisrael? Us. You Us? You were there? <laughs> this was not by Harsina. <laughs> maybe at Harsina, maybe, but even that is like, you know. Well, saying you were at Harsina, your Nishama's at Harsina, is like saying like you were there at your parents' wedding. Which is true in some kind of like metaphysical sense, right? <laughs> What? Well, not really, because the, because the, the little thing about neshamas is that individual neshamas are are brought out of general neshamas. So when we say all neshamas were there, we mean because all of the the neshamas from all the future generations are all derivatives of the neshamas that were there. Not like your neshamas were there like individually. So like you were your derivative of your parents. Same thing. Is it possible to limit the scope of the Meaning? Yeah, maybe it's only certain situations. You people that are in this situation, you can do it, right? But not other people in other situations, right? It is always true that if you are the kind of people that Moshe was talking to you, then this is something that... Or like, highlight the word so you can fulfill it. Well, that's not where we're going to yet. That, that's, that's a different approach altogether. Yeah. Wait, but can't you say that about, like, everything that's in the Torah? You could. As in, like, oh, keeping Shabbos, like, that's only for that generation. You could. Now, this is an actual, this is, this, is, this is correct. And so this notion of the Torah being eternal has to be understood on many, many levels. Right. In other words, right, you definitely could, and by the way, there are things that we do say in the Torah. They're like, there are things that we say that were addressed to those people at that time and not addressed to future generations. 
But usually when we make that argument, at least when it comes to the, the, the things that are in the written Torah, the general way we make that argument is on two levels. One, we only make that argument when the text clearly seems to indicate that that's the case. Um, the other thing is that we generally only make that argument about like the, um, um, about like the kind of halachic requirements of things. So for instance, if you were to look at the laws of the Paschal offering in Egypt, they don't match with the laws of the Paschal offering as described in future generations. We understand there were special rules that applied to one and not the other. Um, so we have this notion, what's called a mitzvah that's not ladurus, a mitzvah that's not intended for all generations. But you need, there's a burden of proof to kind of show that that's what the scripture is talking about. Generally speaking, we say the Torah is eternal in the sense that what? That the Torah applies to everybody at all times and all places. Now, that doesn't mean every mitzvah applies to every person because some mitzvahs clearly have stipulations in them. When we move, though, to things that are not concrete observances, but are kind of general lessons about our relationship with God, now we're kind of really not going to do that anymore. Right? So is it true that every single Jew um, has to, um, I don't know, bring a sacrifice um, when the Torah describes? The answer is no, because the Torah describes the sacrifices only being required under certain conditions, those conditions aren't met. So we don't have to bring the sacrifice, even though the law is still in the books. Or the Torah says certain things about certain laws, but it's clear from context it only applies at that time, not future generations. So it's not a one of the 613 mitzvahs. But here we're talking about a verse which is addressed to the whole people. Right? There's no stipulations in it that it's conditional. And it's talking not about an observance, but a fact of our relationship with God. So taking the notion of the Torah being eternal should mean that that is eternally relevant, not just it's eternal in that technical sense. And so do we have that ability to say, well, in Moshe's time, in Moshe's generation, people that had those, like, no, like that's not, right, that's what the Torah is. The, 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 the Torah is eternal in the sense of eternally relevant, and this meaning eternally relevant, that the, the verse is describing this way, we have to take that seriously. Even though there are situations in the Torah where we may make the argument that the Torah is eternal doesn't mean eternal relevance, and so like we can avoid the whole problem. Okay. Um, so we have a very difficult thing, which is the Torah is making a claim about our relationship with God, and our experience does not match that, and that's not because we live in you know, 2022, or soon to be 2023, the altar was saying it doesn't match the experience in his time, and the altar of his mind doesn't match the experience in most people's times. So we have a problem. Okay. Now, there's more things we have to discuss, but we're running short on, okay, on, on time. So before I open a new topic, I think I really just will wrap things up. Okay. We have a problem. Our problem is the Torah is making a claim about our ability as Jews and our understanding of that claim as of right now is what? Is that the Torah is claiming we are capable of going from the kind of person who our inner life is oriented around our desires as it pertains to mundane things. This I like, this I don't like, this I need, this I need to get rid of, right? And there's definitely room for Hashem within that, right? to someone who the anchor point in their life is Hashem and their need for closeness to Hashem and their abhorrence of anything that gets in the way or makes that not possible. And that seems like something that is not a shift that we are capable of bringing into ourselves in any sort of reliable way. 
and yet the Torah, as if we're understanding, is making that claim. And that kind, that kind of claim doesn't come with any kind of conditions. So it's understood that claim is supposed to apply to Jewish people writ large, not specific Jews under specific conditions. There's nothing to indicate that. Which is sometimes where we get around the problem of the Torah being eternal and we don't want it, or we don't think it should be relevant, is applying that there's other things or stipulations or whatever else too. Good? Okay. What we still need to do is we need to understand the argument here is that fear of God seems to be um, easier to achieve than love. He says if fear is something that's not such a small thing, then all the more so love. We need to understand why is love of God even more difficult to achieve than fear of God? Because his argument, his understanding of the heart is primarily about the development of love, not so much about fear. So we need to understand that. And then the last part of the paragraph which I didn't read, which is this statement that the rabbis have said that tzaddikim have control over their hearts. We need to understand what that is and what that means. So that's what we're going to do tomorrow. Cover those two topics, God willing. Good? And then on Wednesday, we'll spend 15 minutes of Tanya to make up for the 15 minutes of questions and answers. Yes. Or maybe not, I don't know, we'll see. (laughs)